0: And currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And we are resuming then in Genesis chapter 40. Genesis chapter 40, verse 8. We looked at the first part of verse 8 last time, and that was the part where the chief butler and the chief baker said we've each had a dream and there is no interpreter of it and we kind of we're left off with a cliffhanger there of sorts uh, but picking up there where that left off just by way of review i guess we should talk a little bit about where are we we're in prison joseph's the guy that's uh, been designated put in charge of the chief butler and the chief baker who have been imprisoned by pharaoh apparently they did something wrong and we don't know what it is. We're not ever told what it is that they did wrong. Somebody did something wrong. And the presumption is maybe one of them did something wrong and the other one didn't, and there's still an investigation that's ongoing. Uh, but until then, they're both in prison and put it in Joseph's care. Joseph sees one morning that they seem to be especially sad and he says why are you guys especially sad today? Mm -hmm. And they say well, we've had dreams and there's nobody here to interpret it That takes us up then to the beginning of verse 8 or at least through the beginning of verse 8 So the second half of verse 8 is where Joseph said to them Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please So Joseph jumps right in. I mean you talk about uh, being bold for God, right? Mm -hmm. So he says hey God's got this. This is going to be an easy one for God. You have a dream that you don't understand what the meaning is? Tell me the dream. Uh, Don't interpretations belong to God? Tell the dreams to me. Tell them to me, please. So the idea of an interpreter, you remember we talked a little bit about this at the end of the last time, it was that in Pharaoh's court and the interpretation of dreams, it was considered uh, significant enough that they have a book. The Babylonians and the Egyptians both had books on interpreting dreams, well, these guys are cut off from that. They don't get to go consult the book or the magicians or the, or the, the, the wise uh, men, if you will, of Pharaoh's court to find out what their dreams mean. So they feel like they're kind of stuck. Joseph, almost as a little jab to the, uh, the deities that would be maybe worshipped by Egyptians, says to them, well, doesn't my God interpret dreams? My God can do that. That's easy enough. So uh, to interpret is to expound or explain, right? And so right now you're thinking, well, that's pretty obvious. Mm -hmm. I want to come back to that later on at the end of the lesson. But to interpret something is to expound or to explain what the dream is. And it sounds like Joseph is stepping up to volunteer to do that. When Joseph says to them, do not interpretations belong to God, tell them to me, please. I'm wondering if Joseph was to have had the New Testament, which he didn't. Obviously, he didn't. But if he was, I wonder if his favorite passage for this scenario might have been something like Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, which says, Now to him, that's God, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God can do more than we can ask or imagine. And Joseph seems like he's up for the challenge here, recognizing that it's not going to rest on his shoulders, it's on God's shoulders. Can God do immeasurably more than these guys would hope to ask or imagine? Yes, in Joseph's mind, piece of cake. God's got this. Seat of application number one that you've got there on your paper, I would suggest to you it says, boldly trust God. Boldly trust God and step out in faith. Boldly trust God step out in faith. That's what Joseph is doing here, a good example for us. Verse 9. Somebody might read in verse 9. Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, Behold, in my dream a vine was before me. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriella. Gabriella's version, the same as uh, the version that I'm using here as well, it has the chief butler, but some of you might have a version that has something different instead of butler. I see Mike's nodding his head. Mike, what does yours say? Cupbearer. Cupbearer, good. So you have uh, the word that can be translated either way. So there are translations that uh, proclaim cupbearer, others have butler. Just know we're talking about the same thing here. All right, so this is the guy who's in charge of the cup. He's going to be handing the cup to Pharaoh. That was part of his job description. And presumably, he would be the one that would take a sip of what that whatever's in the cup to make sure that the pharaoh's not going to be poisoned, right? So dangerous job if somebody wants to kill the pharaoh you, and you're the guy that hands the cup and has to take a sip before you hand it to him. A little bit of occupational hazard that you've got going on there, but that's the guy, all right? So that's the guy. And so he's describing that he has a dream, and in his dream there's a vine, all right? We're going to find out it's a grapevine. And that obviously has something to do with what his job description was, Right? From grapes, you get wine. This guy is the guy that takes that grape juice, that wine, and gives it to the Pharaoh. All right, so in his dream, behold, in my dream, a vine was before me. So picture a grapevine. All right, picture this dream, picture a grapevine. And then verse 10. Somebody mind reading verse 10. And on the vine were three branches, and as it was budding, its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Excellent. Thank you, Levette. So, Okay, so we've got the vine. Now we've got three branches on the vine. I'd also encourage you to pay attention to the threes. Threes are going to be significant in the in interpretation of these dreams and the dreams themselves. So we've got the vine, we've got the three branches, and now we've got grapes, ripe grapes, coming out of this vine, this image that he has in his dream. somebody mind reading verse 11? Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them in, in a Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So now we've got the cup. We've got a drink in the cup. Mm-hmm. We've got Pharaoh makes an appearance in the dream. And we've got uh, this butler or the cupbearer bearer is Pharaoh in the capacity of the employment that he's already had up until this point. Mm-hmm. All right, so this is, these are the images, these are the pictures that we have, the symbols that we have in the dream that Joseph is working with to provide an interpretation. So the interpretation, it begins in verse 12. Somebody mind reading verse 12. And Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriella. So right away, Joseph doesn't even hesitate. He doesn't say, you know what, hang on a second, let me pray to God for an interpretation. We don't see that. He jumps right in, right? So it sounds like Joseph's probably pretty well prayed up. It sounds like maybe Joseph goes through life being in a constant attitude of prayer. <laughs> Paul encourages the same of us, that we should be praying always, is the language Paul uses in the New Testament. Pray without ceasing, as one translation would put it. How do you do that? How do You You can't have a conversation with somebody while you're praying. If you're praying without ceasing, you can't answer the telephone because you're praying. No, What it means is being in a constant attitude of prayer. All right, And it doesn't necessarily mean you need to be praying out loud or you need to be praying silently or what the case is. But being a constant attitude of communion with God that you're in this attitude of prayer, it sounds like that's probably what we're seeing in Joseph's life. He doesn't even need to ask God, hey, provide the interpretation. It's as if he's already wired into God. He's already on the call with God and God's able to provide the interpretation. The three branches are three days. Three branches are three days and we'll see that... Uh, You remember how we talked about the threes, right? So here we're starting to see the interpretation, this part having to do with the threes. The three days, we're going to see that again in verse 13. Verse 13, somebody mind reading that one? Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. Excellent. Thank you, Levit so i'm thinking if i was in joseph's place right and i hear the dream has this element of three and even if god impresses upon me that that three indicates some sort of time unit you know what do you have to choose from oh well you've got three days or is it three weeks or is it three months or is it going to be three years he goes with days i mean i'm thinking i'm thinking because i'm not hearing from god i'm not in joseph's spot right there right but i might be thinking gosh you know if i say three days and it doesn't happen in three days that's going to make me look bad. It's going to make God look bad. Uh, it's going to be three units of time. Not sure how long. Let's start with three days. If it doesn't work out, let's let's check again in three weeks. No, he, he doesn't even hedge his bet. He goes right after and he says it's three days. All right. So uh, apparently it's not going to take very long to find out whether or not God is actually moving in Joseph's life and in in this interpretation. Right. Verse 14. But remember me, so this is Joseph talking to the butler, right? He's given a favorable reply to the butler as to what his dream means. And now in verse 14, but remember me when it is well with you. It doesn't say, notice it doesn't say, remember me if this turns out the way I think it will. Well, he's got confidence, right? The wording is clear. He's confident that this is the way, this is the interpretation. Remember me when it is well with you. And please show kindness to me. You know, I'm thinking if I was Joseph and I was in this situation, what he's about to ask for is he's about to ask for the butler to put in a special word to Pharaoh and get me out of here. That's what we're going to hear as we read through these verses. I'm thinking if I know full well that I'm going to provide this guy a good interpretation, I'm going to probably try to seal an agreement before I give him the interpretation. Look, I got a really good interpretation for you, but I need you to promise Before I tell you the interpretation, I need you to promise that you're going to talk to Pharaoh and get me out of here. But he doesn't do that. He's he's gentle and kind and ends up saying there, and please show kindness to me. Right? So it's not like there's a prenup before a marriage type of thing right here. You know, he's telling the the interpretation of what the dream is going to be. And please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. That's interesting. He's in a house. Not so fast. We'll find out. (laughs) It's not so much of a a house as we'll see here. But on Joseph's confidence here, I'm impressed when he says, remember me when it is well with you. Remember the definition of faith found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 defines faith in this way. Now, faith is the confidence. Faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. Mm -hmm. Joseph is living out that definition of faith he's got confidence in what he hopes for and he's got an assurance about something that's not yet seen right you tell the skeptic of the world at this point if the skeptic of the world was in the cell with these guys and hearing the interpretation joseph gives right here that it's a favorable interpretation it's going to come true in three days your skeptic of the world is going to say you know not so fast It, it hasn't happened yet until it happens i put no stake or no faith in what what you've got going on here The world would say oh it remains to be seen what's going to happen here and Joseph says it's as good as done Joseph says this is going to happen. It's assured. He's got the assurance. He's got that confidence Genesis chapter 40 verse 15 Genesis 40 verse 15 for indeed. I was stolen away This is Joseph still talking now to the butler for indeed. I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews And also, I have done nothing here that they should put me into the dungeon. Okay, so now it's a dungeon. It was a house just in the last verse. Now it's a dungeon. So apparently he was using language that was, um, it painted a better picture than where he really is. Uh, Now it seems like uh, he's laying the cards out on the table. This is a dungeon here. And they would know. They're in there with him, right? For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews. This phrase here, the land of the Hebrews, we don't know what he's referring to. Is he referring to the place where he was with his dad before he went to find the brothers? Or is he referring to the place where his brothers were when they threw him into the pit? Or is he referring to the entire land of Canaan, which has been promised by God to his forefathers, but hasn't been realized yet? It's kind of interesting to see that, the land of the Hebrews. And then he says this, And also, I have done nothing. As if he's saying, I haven't, I've done nothing wrong i'm innocent how often do we hear that in this building right and how often do we hear that as deputies in the tunnels when we're walking somebody through the tunnels we hear it all the time we hear these inmates attest their innocence right and then we hear them in the courtroom and we hear the testimony that comes out and we hear the things that even the jury doesn't hear because they're outside that are being discussed outside the presence of the jury and we go That guy was claiming to be innocent, and now everything else I'm hearing, it's clear this guy's guilty, right? And and that happens to us over and over again that we get to the point where we think nobody's innocent, right? We think if you're in jail, you're guilty is basically kind of the end result oftentimes that comes to us. But here we have an inmate who really is innocent. (laughs) Joseph really is innocent. We got to watch the whole progression of his life, and we know that these things were done to him, and it wasn't anything he had done wrong on his part. And then the, he says there, he uses that word dungeon, like I mentioned, at the end of verse 15. That word for dungeon right there is also the same word that is used to describe the pit that the brothers threw him into, all right? So he's he's using a word, it's a synonym for pit. <laughs> he goes, will you please talk to Pharaoh and get me out of this pit? And it's kind of interesting. He starts off in a pit when his brothers throw him in, you know, into that pit over there. And now he's talking about another pit over here. Uh, the kind of fun part that I've got here, for your seat of application... And I want to challenge you with this before we fill it in. Was God with Joseph when his brothers threw him into the pit? Yes. Is God with Joseph right now when he's in this pit? Yes. Was God with Joseph everywhere in between? Yes. So here's the receipt of application. God goes with us even when we're in the pits. <laughs> All right having a little fun there with the little turn of phrase there god goes with us even when we're in the pits god went with joseph he was with joseph when joseph was in the first pit he was with joseph at this point in the story when he's in this dungeon in this pit god was with joseph everywhere in between and it's the same god who goes with us god goes with us even when we're in the pits verse 16 somebody might read in verse 16 When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I, too, had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. There's that three again. Three baskets on his head. So if you're imagining this scene, right, it's taking place in a jail cell. It's taking place in a dungeon. We're going to find out one of these guys is guilty. We're going to find out it's this guy. We're going to find out the baker is the one who ends up getting punished uh, for his wrongdoings. He's the guilty guy. So if you're the guilty guy, what are you doing? You're probably hanging back, right? Because you're, watch- you're watching the other guy. Hey, we had these dreams, you know, me and this fellow employee of the pharaoh. Uh, we had these dreams. And you're just sitting back. You're like, well, let's see what happens to this, you know. And then the cupbearer gives his, his dream. Joseph gives a good interpretation. Well, now... Being the guilty part you are. Maybe it was guilt that held you back, like you were withholding something. But now he got a good interpretation. Maybe there's a chance I could get a good interpretation too. Hey, you know what? His vine had a three in his dream. I got a three in my dream. Uh, I could see some other parallels, some other correlations between his dream and mine. It's my turn. Right? So he decides he's going to say something. Now imagine this. All right? I'm, I'm trying to picture what this dream looks like. Uh, I also was in my dream and there were three baskets, white baskets on my head. Uh, do these guys walk around with baskets balanced on their heads? At first I was trying to like, what does this look like? We find out from the next verse, there's a basket that's described as the uppermost. So apparently it's a basket and then on top of that is another basket and on top of that is another basket. But they're open baskets. It doesn't sound like there's lids on them because we're going to find the birds can eat the stuff out of the baskets. So it sounds like it's almost like a top basket inside of a middle basket inside of a, a basket that's on the guy's head. What a weird picture, right? So here we have verse 17. In the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods. Mm. All kinds of baked goods. I got to pause there because, you know, we, we've done this before. We've gotten derailed by things like donuts and, and, and apple fritters. and uh, But here you... I mean, Yeah. We could have some chocolate muffins. We, we could have some chocolate chip cookies in here. There's all kinds of baked goods that could be in there. And it sounds like there's. it says, that's part of the language, all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh. And the birds, and the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. That's kind of strange. Because for the cupbearer, the wine was for Pharaoh, and he gave it to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was in the dream, received the wine. These baked goods, it says, are for Pharaoh, but Pharaoh doesn't get them. The birds end up eating them before he's able to take the baked goods to Pharaoh. That's kind of strange. So we have some similarities. Both dreams have threes, the three branches and the three baskets. Both dreams have to do with their occupation, right? The cup bearer is bearing a cup. The baker has got baked goods. Both dreams uh, have the person who's doing the dreaming in the dream, right? So the baker is in his own dream. The cup bearer is in his own dream. So, so those are some of the similarities, but some of the differences. Mm-hmm. One of the differences is in the baker's dream, there's no pharaoh. The pharaoh doesn't appear. He's not in the dream as opposed to the cupbearer. The pharaoh was there. All right? Another difference is pharaoh received the cup, like we said, in the cupbearer's dream, but pharaoh doesn't receive the baked goods in this dream. So there's another difference. Another difference is in the baker's dream, he's not doing his duty. I mean, he's carrying baked goods, but he's not engaged in his occupational duty, whereas the cupbearer, he is in his dream. And then finally, you've got this element of the birds. The cupbearer, dream doesn't have any birds. The baker's dream has birds. That's kind of strange that you have birds mentioned in his dream. Genesis chapter 40 verse 18. Somebody might reading, verse 18. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days Pharaoh will lift off your head and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat away you <laughs> What? excellent thank you mike so that was verses 18 and 19 there right there let's look at verse 18 a little bit so far so good if you just read verse 18 so far so good joseph answered and said the interpretation of it the three baskets are three days that's the same way it started for the other guy right so i'm thinking if i'm the guilty party i'm going this is going well my interpretation is turning out the same as the other guy's interpretation right maybe he's getting a little excited but here's what i have caution: don't count your eggs before they hatch right you ever heard that saying, don't count your eggs before they hatch it? We had chickens for a while. You remember, I, uh, you remember some chicken stories. We had some chickens. If chickens lay eggs, right, and you're expecting that those chickens are going to lay eggs that are fertile and they're going to hatch and there's going to be chickens in those, if that chicken lays 10 eggs and they're sitting on 10 eggs, that doesn't mean you're going to get 10 chickens. Some of those eggs aren't hatched yet. You might get three, four, five, six, or seven, but you're probably not going to get the full ten, right? So don't count your eggs before they hatch. Don't boast as if, oh, I'm going to have ten more chickens just because there's ten more eggs in there. No, it's a little premature to do that. What is? Well, there's a proverb that has to do with this as well. It says, don't boast about tomorrow, right? So if this guy's getting excited, oh, my, my interpretation is turning out the same as that guy. No, you're a little, you know, getting a little ahead. Don't boast about tomorrow. Don't boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. That's Proverbs 27, 1. And when you're filling in your seeds of application, you've got there just a little reminder having to do with this. Do not boast about tomorrow. Do not boast about tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We certainly shouldn't be boasting about what blessings we can expect to get tomorrow. Do not boast about tomorrow. Verse 19, within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. That's the same phrase that was used with the cupbearer. In the Hebrew, exactly the same phrase. So for the baker right now, he's probably thinking to himself, cool, I'm getting the same interpretation as the other guy. But your translation committees sometimes come to your rescue to help you to see there's actually a difference. There's a difference in this. There's an additional phrase at the end. And we'll lift up your head from you from you that's not a good place for my head to be (laughs) I want my head with me now Mike's translation has the same thing as my translation instead of will lift up your head it says will lift off your head And your translation committees go the extra step to make it really clear this is not a good dream (laughs) alright so it's actually the same exact phrase, like I said, in the Hebrew, but your English translation committees go out of their way to make sure that you recognize this is not actually the same thing. All right, So it's the same phrase, but it means something completely different. It means the opposite, right? So for the cupbearer, the meaning is you're going to get your job back. And for the baker, the same phrase means exactly the opposite. You're going to get killed. All right? You're going to die. And you see that in that additional phrase. We'll lift off your head from you. Well, and if, uh, as if that's not enough and hang you on a tree and the birds of the air will eat your flesh the birds will eat your flesh from you all right so that makes it pretty clear that's not a good interpretation if you're the guy receiving that interpretation that's not something you want to hear by the way hang you on a tree if you're like me if you were thinking originally that this had to do if you're picturing the old West days right and you got a hanging right they're hanging from the highest tree and they throw a rope over the tree and they hang the bad guy right? Um, How do you do that if your head is – if you're decapitated? How do you you accomplish that? What uh, the theologians and the commentaries usually say right about here is instead of picturing hanging from a rope, picture he's impaled on a stake. He's impaled on a pole. The body is put on display on a pole and the birds of the air end up eating the flesh of that. And this would – as if that's not bad enough, this would be especially egregious for somebody who's Egyptian because they get mummified, Right? They go through the process of being made into a mummy. And so this is ignoble and ignoble way. It's an indignity to face something like this. This is going to be his end. Oh, that's not good news at all. Verse 20. Somebody mind reading verse 20. Now it passed on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief butler, and of the chief baker among his servants. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriella. So it sounds like the fate is the same for both of them. Mm -hmm. They both had their heads lifted up. We're going to find out in the next verse that's not quite the way it turned out. But here, this is the first time we're told that Pharaoh's birthday has anything to do with this, right? And did you notice that? The third day, just exactly as Joseph had prophesied. That was exactly what Joseph had predicted, inspired by God, right? So it's the third day. It's Pharaoh's birthday. Happy birthday to you. And Pharaoh, on his birthday, decides we're going to have a feast, as you would expect a Pharaoh to do for his birthday. The interesting thing is uh, birthdays. We celebrate birthdays in a big way, right? Around here in the United States, birthday celebrations are, are a big deal. We got invited to a birthday party for a one-year-old. One-year-old. And I think they're spending about 1000 bucks to rent a, a bounce house and to have like a DJ come out. And all this money being spent... On somebody who's never going to remember Mm -hmm. (laughs) the first birthday, right? So, birthday's a big deal in our culture and what we've gotten used to. You don't find birthday celebrations very often in your Bible. In fact, you don't even have mention of births very often in your Bible, other than the actual birth, all right? You don't have anniversaries of their birth being mentioned typically. So, here we have Pharaoh's birthdays being mentioned, uh, celebration, Another one that comes to mind is Herod's birthday party. You remember that one where Herodias came out and did the dance? And how did that end? John the Baptist lost his head. That was a birthday party. Okay, so we got a bummer of a birthday party. This one's going to end up with the baker dying. Uh, Herod's birthday party mentioned in the Bible. Uh, you have John the Baptist dying. Um, Job, he mentions his birthday. He says, cursed be the day of my birth. <laughs> oh, Bummer. How about Ecclesiastes? The author of Ecclesiastes says the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. So birthdays don't get the airplay that uh, they do nowadays in our modern cultures. Why is that? Why are birth anniversaries not celebrated as readily in the Bible as as we have here? I wonder if it has something to do with uh, Genesis 3, verse 16, where the curse, right, in the Garden of Eden? Mm The man, the woman, and the serpent, and each one gets a little bit of a different curse. What is the, what's the curse on the woman? You're going to be in pain when you have a baby now. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I'm thinking if you're a little kid in Old Testament times going, I want to celebrate my birthday. Mom's going to go, you know what? Right. I'm glad you came into the world, but I don't want to be reminded of the curse and the pain. All right, so we're not celebrating that day. Pick another day. <laughs> we can have cake some other day. We're not having cake on your birthday. You know, that's not a good reminder for me. I'm just, uh, I'm half teasing there. But before you decide to stop celebrating birthdays altogether, let me encourage you to at least celebrate, right, the greatest birthday of all, the arrival of Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, God the Son in flesh, born of a virgin, born with the ultimate purpose of, being to die in our place so that we could live forever to be with him. Here's one of my favorite passages having to do with the birth of that one. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's from Luke chapter two, verses ten through fourteen. Classic Christmas passage, right? That doesn't get heard so much anymore. The old Charlie Brown show. You remember that? When Ly- I think it was Linus that was actually the one that was saying those lines. And I just I look at that now every time that I see it now, and I go, Wow, that was a, that was just a couple decades ago, and nowadays it's you don't hear that so much. Um, so there's a birth worth celebrating. In fact, your seeds of application, you have one more to fill in there, or the next one to fill in there, the fourth one to fill in there. There's a birth worth celebrating, the birth of Jesus. Okay, so where were we? Let's see. Pharaoh's birthday party. All right, so we're at Pharaoh's birthday party. He lifts up the head of both of these guys, right? Oh, but verse 21 provides a little bit of clarification. Somebody might be reading verse 21 as the starter, and then we'll look at 22 in a few moments after that. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. All right, so he got his job back, just like just like Joseph had prophesied. Here's one of the things I want to say about prophecy in the Bible. Prophecy in the Bible, it's such a staple in God's handiwork, right? It's such a staple in God's handiwork and the way that he deals with people. And in his word, prophecy is so much there that it's almost taken for granted. It's almost commonplace. But I want you to make sure, make no mistake about it, and here's a seed of application. Fulfilled prophecy sets the one true God and the Judeo-Christian faith apart from the imposters and the counterfeits. Yeah, I, I'm sure you've heard of Nostradamus, right? And the prophecy, you know, oh, there's prophecies that have to do with the end of days. You I mean, you look at the prophecies and they're like, really? These count? Mm-hmm. People are actually listening to this stuff? You know, how many of them come true? You look at God's word, it's got a track record unparalleled when it comes to prophecy. Prophecy is all through this book. And God bets a thousand. Is that how they say it? God bets a thousand? <laughs> God bets a thousand when it comes to prophecy. There's no unfulfilled prophecies, some that just haven't been fulfilled yet. So prophecies totally sets apart the Judeo-Christian faith from the imposters. And the counterfeiters. So, again, when you're filling that in, fulfilled prophecy sets the one true God and the Judeo Christian faith apart from the imposters and the counterfeits. Verse 22 further clarification that the fate of the butler and the baker are different. Somebody might read in that one. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted today. So, just exactly as Joseph had prophesied when he was moved by the Holy Spirit. The fate was completely different. It was the opposite. One gets his job back, the other guy, he's dead. One of the things that we see here that's implied in this is that this was done in the presence of the servants. Did you notice that it said that in verse 20, that this was a birthday party that was being celebrated for the servants? The Pharaoh threw the party. For all his servants, a feast for all his servants, it says there in verse twenty. So I I've, I've got to think that perhaps as part of this celebration, or at least in the presence of these servants, one guy's restored to his office and the other guy is killed. All right, what does that do? That as Pharaoh, that tells your entire group of servants that I'll reward the person who does right, and I will kill the person who seeks to betray me, right? So it's a warning, right? It's an encouragement, but it's a warning as well. You know what's interesting is that whole doing something in front of the group to serve as a warning for everybody else is actually part of what Paul tells Timothy to do, part of the dynamic that goes on there. In 1 Timothy 5, verses 19 and 20, It says this, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. And then verse 20, Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. So kind of doing something in front of the group to set an example. It's kind of a strange idea, but that's actually a biblical idea. I do have to clarify, though, that that is an abbreviated version of what you're to do. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, Jesus gives a a more complete picture. Basically, if somebody is in your congregation and, and is sinning, and you go to them as an individual to an individual, and if they hear you, great. And if they don't, then what you do is you take two or three with you, And you address the issue with those two or three outside of the whole congregation. And if they repent then, okay, great. You don't need to let the whole congregation know. But if they still don't respond, if they're in sin and they still say, forget it, pound sand, I'm not going to do what you're saying, I'm not going to repent. Then ultimately and eventually, you end up going to confront them in front of the entire congregation. Uh, you don't often see that practice nowadays because it's really awkward, and everybody's concerned uh, they're going to sue me, and you know you got all kinds of issues uh, that people would be concerned about. But it's it's actually biblical to address them in front of a big group like that, that the others may fear. So. Just wanted to touch on that for just a moment. Verse 23, read with me in your version. See if your version says the same thing as mine. Genesis chapter 40, verse 23. And the chief butler was faithful to remember Joseph and made sure to tell Pharaoh about everything that Joseph did, and Pharaoh let Joseph go. Is that what your version says? No, that's not what it says, does it? Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph but forgot him. You know, the author could have said one or the other, but he ends up putting, he could have just said he didn't remember Joseph. Or he could have said, you forgot Joseph. It's actually two Hebrew words. He puts in two Hebrew words. To make it clear, he was ignored and forgotten. But Joseph was ignored and forgotten. You know this idea of being remembered. We've seen it several times as we've been moving through the book of Genesis. And oftentimes when we see the word remembered, it talks about God remembering somebody. God watching over somebody. it Not escaping God's view as to the situation that people are in. You have in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, God remembered Noah. You have in Genesis 19, verses 28 29, God remembered Abraham. You have in verse 22, God remembered Rachel. And you remember that had to do with her being barren. So the seat of application, it's the same God that watches over us. Here's your seat of application. God does not forget you. Hebrews thirteen five is kind of an encouragement along these lines. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. And then this part, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's our God. Our God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God has not forgotten you. God does not forget you. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about God not forgetting, I can't help but talk about another passage. And it's a different context. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 14 through 16. It talks about God not forgetting his people. And and there it's, it's called Zion. It says, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. And then as if the, the author is saying, no, it's not quite that way. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget. And then speaking on the place of God, yet I will not forget you. I will not forget you. This is God speaking to his people, the Old Testament, the Hebrews, the Jews, right? Mm-hmm. Saying, I have not forgotten you. What, what does that mean for us? Seat of application. God has not forgotten Israel. Now, I know there's plenty of people that would say, well, that, you know what, a lot has happened since that was written. And uh, you know what, they have finally exhausted every last straw with God, and God has turned His back on Israel, and He has cut them off. But you know what, that's not what the Bible teaches. Romans chapter 11, verses 2 and verse 5. God has not cast away His people whom He foreknew. And verse 5. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So your seat of application. God has not forgotten Israel. If you haven't filled that in yet, God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten Israel. And then what I want to do is I want to I want to finalize this whole thing by going back to verse eight. So going back to verse eight, and they said to him, "We each have had a dream, and there is no interpreter of it." To interpret, you remember I said, and I, that I would be coming back to this. To interpret is to expound or to explain, right? So I'm thinking, and I can't I can't help but make this correlation. If God wanted to, let's say, explain Himself and His His ways of dealing with people to you and I, how would He do that? He could tell us, right? He could appear in a dream to us and say, "This is who I am, and this is how I deal with people." He could do that, but what has What do we have a tendency to do with dreams? They fade with time. It would be much better if you wrote it down. So God, instead of giving me a dream, can you write it down? Write down how you deal with me and describe for me your character and your nature. He has. We have it in God's word right here. This explains and expounds as to who God is and how he deals with people. But even more than that, why did Jesus come to earth? Well, he came to seek and to save the lost for sure. But I want to draw your attention to a particular story from Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 32, it's the two travelers on the way to Emmaus. And this is after the resurrection. And you've got these two characters who are walking from point A to point B, and they're discussing among themselves what happened. What did we just see? What, what's going on in this world and in our, in our Jerusalem? And they're describing the death of Jesus. And Jesus is walking on the road with them, and he catches up to them and says, Hey, guys, how you doing? What's going on with you? And uh, what are you talking about? And they say, we just had this weird couple of days where we had this guy, we thought he was going to be the Savior, and now he's, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, dead. But then we hear from these ladies, he's alive, and we don't know what to make of it. And then what happens? You find in verse 27, it says that Jesus begins to explain everything to them Mm -hmm. from the scriptures. Is Jesus explaining everything to them from the Gospel of Matthew? No. From the Gospel of Mark? No. From Luke? No. From John? No. None of those are written yet. He has just risen from the dead. None of of the New Testament is written yet. He's expounding. He's explaining to them using the scriptures that we would call the Old Testament. He's using the Old Testament to paint the picture of himself, his arrival, his purpose for coming to earth, his death, his resurrection, the redemption that we have through him. He's using the Old Testament scriptures, not the new, to explain all that stuff. So what does that mean? When these guys, when I see these two guys in the prison cell saying, we need somebody to explain it to us, I would say, Jesus is good at explaining stuff to us. And so what would I say there for that last one? That seat of application, look to Jesus when you're troubled and confused. He's the one that's best equipped to explain to us the things that trouble us and confuse us. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that if you wanted to speak to us, you would probably do it in writing. Oh, and look, you did. Help us not to take it for granted, but to spend our time finding out what it is that you had to say to us. And as we read through your word, we would get a better grasp as to who you are and what you would ask of us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. You guys have a great day.